I want to ask the Anglican clergy that are among us to please stand up. Are there any others to welcome to St. Ambrose Catholic Church? Thank you for coming tonight. Our speaker, Father Joseph Fessio, was ordained as a Roman Catholic priest on June 10, 1972. In 1975, he earned his doctorate in theology from the University of Regensburg. He studied under Father Joseph Ratzinger, now Pope Benedict XVI. In 1978, Father Fessio founded Ignatius Press, a Catholic publishing company. More than all the things that I have on this piece of paper in front of me right now, I'll tell you that it is my opinion that Father Fessio has single-handedly spearheaded the restoration of the Catholic Church faithful to the Magisterium, faithful to the Holy Father in the United States. And therefore, it is my honor to welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture Father Joseph Fessio. Instead, uh, I have a. It goes anywhere in the pocket you want. In the pocket? Stick it in the pocket? Sure, stick it in your pocket. There you go. Okay. Okay. They tell me to stick it in other places usually when I. Okay. (laughs) But, uh, yeah, well, I mean, I have the the Jesuit view of Lent is that uh, whatever you give up when Vespers on Saturday takes place, you know, you're now in Sunday liturgically, so you can have wine and sweets and whatever you've given up, but I also think that Sunday lasts till midnight, so uh, uh, I'm glad that the spirit is one of a kind of joy and uh, joviality because this is going to be kind of a laugher for these conferences, and I, I'm confident because of the success you've had that just one lemon will not ruin the whole series. Uh, the last time, I mean, I did come with some trepidation because the last time I was invited to speak in uh, Virginia, uh, I gave a talk, I forget exactly where it was, but uh, I was subpoenaed for a lawsuit. Uh, <laughs> and then this time I thought, well, I'm coming to the Beltway and, you know, it's, it's the land of great diversity and people will respect others and different kinds of views, points, and so on. So I got, Amtrak was actually early. I came in from Philadelphia. Amtrak was early. And uh, so I thought, well, I'll, I'll stop by the bookstore and I'll see if Ignatius Press books are there. There were none. Uh, <laughs> well, I'll go to the religion section and see what's there. So huge Dalton's bookstore, walk in. They've got, you know, all the funny magazines and they've got children's books and they've got little gifts you can give. And I walked to the religion section. And at least it was separated from the New Age section. So that was a different section. <laughs> religion section, they had all these various books. I was looking for something by Pope Benedict. I looked, looked, I didn't see anything. I went over to the desk and I said, okay, to the latest, you know, do you have anything here by Pope Benedict? Oh, well, I thought we, I think we had a picture book by him, yeah. <laughs> Let's go look at that. And so she brings it over there. So no, I, I looked around, I didn't see it. Well, I guess we don't. I said, well, don't you think that with all these books on religion, you'll have at least one or two books by the Pope of the largest religious organization in the world? Uh, well, gosh, maybe so. I said, well, talk to the manager, will you? Anyway, th- this, by the way, was at Union Station on Capitol Hill. So 
You can get everything else you want, but you can't get a book by Pope Benedict there. Ridiculous. So uh, now I'm going to get serious, but not for very long. Uh, let me start as if it was a serious talk and say this. Uh, once in a while comes an historical event so momentous, so packed with unexpected force that it acts like a large wave under still water propelling us momentarily up from the surface of our times onto a crest where the wider movements of history may be glimpsed better than before. Such an event was Benedict XVI's landmark announcement in October 2009, offering members of the Anglican Communion a fast track into the Catholic Church. Although commentators quickly dubbed this unexpected overture a gambit, what it truly exhibits are the characteristics of a move known in chess as a brilliancy, an unforeseen, bold stroke that stunningly transforms the game. That is a quote from one of your own here in the Beltway, Mary Eberstadt, uh, whom I had the pleasure of having lunch with this afternoon. And it's from an article called Christianity Light, uh, which is in First Things. So you, some of you may recognize the quote I started with. Uh, later on in the talk, uh, I am going to refer to this more in detail because I think it's an extraordinary article, uh, very well structured, very well thought out, uh, but she uses the, this new apostolic constitution, Chetibus Anglicanorum, or I think it's Anglicanorum Chetibus, so they were around, uh, which the Pope issued in the fall of 2009. What I'm going to do tonight, I will divide into four parts. I want to try and present to you a little of the context of Pope Benedict's plan for his papacy and how this recent document fits into that. I want to give you a brief context of the Church of England, and how this kind of converges with its history with what the Pope was doing. Secondly, the context within the Anglican Church. Thirdly, I want to briefly express some of the key uh, elements of the document itself, and then finally talk about some of the consequences. The consequences kind of sociologically, what it means in the Catholic Church. The consequences doctrinally, uh, what implications we can draw from this. And finally, the consequences liturgically for those of us already in uh, the Roman Catholic Church. So let's start with part one here, which is the uh, context of Benedict XVI. Now, he was elected pope on April 19, 2005. And he gave a talk the next morning. He was elected in the afternoon, 6 or 7 o'clock in Rome. The next morning, it was a 9 o'clock Mass, which he was a celebrant for. And after the Mass, he gave an address. Interestingly, it wasn't a homily because it wasn't really liturgical, but he wanted to give the world an idea of what his plan was for the papacy. So the day after he was elected Pope, in the morning, he gave a 22-minute a address in Latin. I don't think he had a bunch of speechwriters all lined up for this. He did that on his own. 
And the press, in my opinion, uh, misunderstood this declaration that he made, which on the 20th, on the Sunday, when he had his installation mass, he referred to as his program for the papacy. On that Sunday, he said, I don't need to give you my program for the papacy. I already spoke about that last Wednesday, 20th. <coughs> and in it, uh, I mean, I recognized the Father Ratzinger that his students had heard so many times with not only a brilliant mind, he, clearly he's brilliant, but a sense of wholeness, of organicity, of structure. Uh, we'd have seminars with him as his doctoral students, and he'd let us talk for a couple of hours. He was very quiet. He would listen. At the end, in two or three minutes, in one German sentence sometimes, uh, <laughs> he would summarize everything and put it all in the proper order, in its proper place, give it the proper weight, and it illuminated the whole afternoon because he was able to draw out the essential elements and put them together in some kind of organic form. And that's, that's the kind of thinker he is. So I, I, saw this, I saw this beautiful Bavarian Germanic structure uh, in his first address. And so at the center of that address, he says, first of all, you know, I owe my allegiance and my, and my work to Jesus. You know, I am obedient to him. Then he said, I want, I ask for the prayer and support in that order of my fellow cardinals and bishops. So he said he wants to act collegially. And then he says, my charter for my papacy will be, and he quotes John Paul II here, uh, the Second Vatican Council, which was the re-reading of the gospel for our time, application to our time. And then he, at the center, made this statement, which is typically Ratzingerian, because he, you know, intellect is also a sense of, of uh, proportion and, and irony. He has a great sense of irony. And so you, you always see the humor, even beside, behind the most serious statements. And so here's what he said. And, and listen to the strength of the language he uses here. I, too, as I begin the service that is proper to the successor of Peter, wish to affirm with force my decided will to pursue the commitment to implement Vatican Council II. Now, it's a strong statement, but this was made in 2005, exactly 40 years after the end of the Council in 1965, and What's the irony here? Wait a minute. 40 years later, you're committing yourself to implement the council? What does that imply? That it has not been implemented or not been implemented entirely or properly. But I didn't give you the whole sentence. It was a German sentence. It was a Latin sentence, but a Germanic sentence. The last phrase is, in faithful continuity with the 2,000-year-old tradition of the church. So he wants to reread the council and implement the council not as a breach from the past, a break from the past, a totally novus ordo seclorum, but rather as something seen in continuity with the past. 
Speaking of that, <laughs> continue with the past. This wine, I think, is from California, isn't it? I don't drink Virginia wine. Sorry, but <laughs> I, I did once. <laughs> I, was, I thought, I thought I'll, I'll be open-minded. I'll give this a try once, but that's, you know. Pardon me? Napa makes auto parts, Virginia makes wine. <laughs> That's good. I, I pour Virginia wine in the gas tank myself and try and see if I But uh, on December 22nd of that first year of his papacy, he gave the customary Christmas talk to the assembled cardinals of the Roman Curia in Rome. And here's what he said at the heart of that talk. He says, the problems of reception of the council derive from the fact that two contrasting hermeneutics found themselves face to face and battled it out. Hermeneutics, for the newcomers here, we haven't gone to these Catholic culture series to know this, just means understanding or interpretation. It's a Greek word. So two understandings or interpretations of the council. One caused confusion. The other silently, but more and more visibly, bore and is bearing fruit. On the one hand, after Einenseite, I can hear him saying that. He used to do that all the time. Und after Einenseite, always balancing things. On the one hand, there is an interpretation that I would like to call hermeneutics of discontinuity and rupture. It was frequently able to find favor among mass media and also a certain sector of the modern theology. On the other hand, there is the hermeneutics of reform, of the renewal of the continuity of the single church subject. The church is a person. The church is the bride united to the bridegroom, one body, one head in continuity through history. In continuity with the single, of the single church subject which the Lord has given us, it is a subject that grows in time and develops, remaining, however, always the same, the one subject of the people of God on their way. Now, because this Pope really is an incredible thinker and has powerful and clear articulation of his thought, which is broad, it's easy to lose sometimes the underlying and continual principles that this thought is based on. Uh, I will maintain, and I'll demonstrate at least partially tonight, that, that a fundamental principle for him is the continuity of the life of the church that there are no quantum leaps in the tradition of the church. This is especially true of the liturgy, uh, which is the, the most central concern this pope has. You may know that he was made an archbishop of Munich Freising in 1977. Uh, that was the last time he actually wrote a book as a book, that is, as a continuous single document. From then on, because of his administrative and pastoral needs and uh, obligations, he, instead of writing books, 
he would write articles, he would give homilies, he would write essays, and they were collected into books. And between 1977 and 2007, when he wrote his first book as Pope, Jesus of Nazareth, he only wrote one book. There were four book-like publications that looked, seemed to be books, but they weren't. Three were interviews. One was called The Ratzinger Report in 1986. One was called Salt of the Earth in 1997 with Peter Zewald, who was a fallen away Catholic, atheist, communist, but very talented journalist, whom Carla Ratzinger graciously allowed to meet with him for a week, after which Zewald uh, produced this wonderful book, The Salt of the Earth, from IgnatiusPress.com, <laughs> uh, and also came back to the church. And then five years later, in 2002, another long interview was published as God in the World. But the only book he wrote as a book was a book which I consider the greatest book by far, with no comparison on the liturgy, ever written, called The Spirit of the Liturgy by Carlo Ratzinger. If you haven't got that book, get it, not just because it's our book, it is, it, it's his masterpiece. And it's written about something which is at the heart of his life. He was born on Holy Saturday, 4.30 in the morning. Uh, in those days, the Easter vigil began in the morning. So at 8.30, his mother had him at the church. And he was baptized. Uh, so he began his natural life and his supernatural life at the heart of the Paschal Mystery on the vigil you know, of Easter Sunday. And that has marked his whole life, and he's recognized that explicitly in some of his writings and some of his conversations. So this, this is the heart of his life and his thought, and if you read the many things he said about the liturgy prior to being elected pope, you will find he uses words like unprecedented rupture, breach, a break in tradition, devastation, and disaster. Those are all his words all the way up until 2004, all right? Not the essence of the Mass, not the Novus Ordo, the Mass of Paul VI as such, but the Mass as it was expressed in normal parish life. He was writing these things, as I say, as late as 2004. He was not talking about the clown masses, which I saw in the 60s and 70s. He was not talking about the hootenanny masses, you know, and those things. He was talking about the mass that most people see in their parish on most Sundays. And that's why, on a date which you should never forget, 07, 07, 07, July 7th, 2007, he issued his motu proprio. Now, under John Paul II, who was another brilliant scholar, but a little more obscure, in my view, and convoluted sometimes, uh, many of us, including God rest his soul, Ralph McInerney, a great giant of the church who died a couple weeks ago, uh, we would talk about the difference between John Paul's rather ponderous prose, you know, these philosophical encyclicals, which seem never-ending, 
And then every so often there'd be a little paragraph or two out of the Congregation of the Doctrine of the Faith, which we called a rat zinger. I mean, <laughs> these were zingers, you know. And he's continued in that. Uh, I think one of the most important documents he's issued on his papacy is the motu proprio sumorum pontificum on the liturgy, in which he is made more widespread with true diversity the celebration of the Mass of prior to the Council, the extraordinary form, as it's now called. But his intention was not to go back before the Council and try and reinstate for the future the status quo ante, the way it was before. What was his intention? He tells us explicitly in the letter he wrote that introduced this motu proprio. And I quote, I now come to the positive reason which motivated my decision to issue this motu proprio, updating that of 1988. It is a matter of coming to an interior reconciliation in the heart of the church. Looking back over the past to the divisions which in the course of the centuries have rent the body of Christ, one continually has the impression that at critical moments when divisions were coming about, not enough was done by the church's leaders to maintain or regain reconciliation and unity. So an interior reconciliation in the heart of the church. Now, some will interpret that to mean that he's merely trying to reconcile the pious X society, which had become schismatic, with the Holy Roman Catholic Church. And it's true. The encyclical did have that as part of its intent. But he makes it clear in the rest of this letter that there was a deeper intention. The reconciliation that he wanted was to heal the breach between the Mass as celebrated at the Council itself and the Mass as celebrated after the liturgical renewal was implemented after the council in the Missal of 1969. He wanted to reconcile that breach. And this is important for the document I'm going to talk about tonight, if there's any time left, but uh, that he wanted the mass, the old mass, the extraordinary form, to be a standard of continuity. He wanted to be there for us to remember what the church's tradition had led up to before the council as a way of judging whether or not new forms of the Mass were truly in continuity as an organic development. And he says explicitly in the same letter, he desires for a, a mutual influence between the extraordinary and the ordinary forms. So he, he's trying to bring the gap back together to, to unify what had been ruptured in the hermeneutics of rupture. Okay, so that was his plan as a pope is to implement the council in continuity with the past. He talked to the cardinals about the two hermeneutics of rupture and a renewal. Two and a half years later, he issues the motu proprio, sumum pontificum, with the explicit purpose of bringing about this kind of a reconciliation in tradition. 
Interestingly, and I could give you many more examples, but I'll just jump forward now to this latest encyclical, which you also should read, Caritas and Veritate. The Ignatius Press version is the most beautiful uh, <laughs> and what will be most lasting, a nice hardback version. Uh, it's interesting, you read that, how much it is referring to Paul VI encyclical Popularum Caressio. As you know, the church has a long history of social encyclicals, beginning probably with 1891, uh, Leo XIII, with Rerum Novarum, and then Quater Moano, and then we had Laborum Exercens, and we had uh, Pachman Terrace, and so on. And because Paul VI, who became Pope during the Council, wrote his social encyclical after the Council of 67, that was seen by many people to be uh, a new beginning, uh, a repudiation of the past, uh, a completely different way of approaching the social question. Here's what Benedict VI says explicitly in Caritas and Veritati towards the beginning, I think it's paragraph 11. He says, the link between Popolorum Progressio and the Second Vatican Council does not mean that Paul VI's social magisterium marked a break with that of the previous popes. Because the council constitutes a deeper exploration of this magisterium within the continuity of the church's life. Here, again, he's always moving towards the idea of continuity. In this sense, clarity is not served by certain abstract subdivisions of the church's social doctrine, which apply categories to papal social teaching that are extraneous to it. It is not a case of two typologies, you know, two models, so to speak, of social doctrine, one preconciliar and one postconciliar, different from one another. On the contrary, there is a single teaching consistent and at the same time ever new. It is one thing to draw attention to the particular characteristics of one encyclical to another or another, of the teaching of one pope or another, but it's quite another thing to lose sight of the coherence of the overall doctrinal corpus. So you see again, in this encyclical, he's trying to show the continuity of Paul VI with what went before him and with the church today. So, again, I, I really could give you many more examples that kind of validate and, and give evidence for this fundamental principle he has of organic growth of the church and of hermeneutic continuity. So that's, that's the general context of Benedict XVI. Uh, the context uh, within the Anglican Communion. Now, we're, Ignatius Press is about to publish a book uh, that consists of mainly articles from a journal called Anglican Embers. And it was sort of a despondent name because it was, these were Anglicans who had either become Catholic and were part of parishes that had so-called Anglican use, that were given permission as individual parishes to maintain a liturgy with the uh, Book of Common Prayer, revised a bit, approved by the Pope. Uh, but they were hoping for a, a larger kind of institutional reunion with the Catholic Church. So those Anglicans and others who remained Anglicans or Episcopalians who were still yearning for union with the church. 
And so the, the editor of this magazine, who wrote a preface for the book, the name is Father Alan Hawkins. I don't really know him personally, but he, uh, and I'm not, again, because I'm not an expert on this, we've got some Anglicans here who can help me, some Episcopalians, but he has this uh, kind of global interpretation of the Church of England uh, from the Reformation to now. Uh, he says, I'm quoting, Ecclesia Anglicana, the English church, had flourished for perhaps 1,300 years before the events of the Reformation created what we now call Anglicanism. So there was an Anglican church, a church in England, the Roman Catholic Church, with its own special features and characteristics, which distinguish it from other local uh, churches, in, in regional churches. He says the English Reformation was not sudden. It was, quote, a process which unfolded over more than a century, from Henry VIII's Act of Supremacy in 1534 to the reestablishment of the Church of England with the restoration of the Stuart monarchy in the person of King Charles II in 1660. So uh, there was a process, there was a back and forth here. Uh, and then he gives some other examples. Uh, and then he says, he says this, on the day of his appointment to Canterbury in 1633, Rome was ready to offer a cardinal's hat to Archbishop William Laud, a very famous theologian and archbishop of the Church of England. At the time of the restoration of the monarchy 27 years later, Charles II appears to have sought the formation of a uniate status for the Church of England. So there was always this longing for some kind of union and he talks about the 19th century bringing about the Oxford movement and in 20th century, the Malin conversations and the Anglican Roman Catholic International Commission are sick. And then he also says that there were acts of parliament and other official acts during that period of time from 1534 all the way to the 20th century in which the terminology included the phrase, quote, until further order to be taken, until further order to be taken. There was there was a sense that there was a waiting for a development, for a, some kind of denouement. And Father Hawkins uh, believes that this mode of uh, apostolic constitution, which is the subject of the talk tonight, is the denouement, it's the conclusion, it's the convergence of what has been in kind of an internal dynamism within the Church of England and the Anglican Communion uh, since the very beginning. Uh, let's take a look at the document itself. Uh, it's a brief document. Again, it's a, it's a rat zinger. It's not a big, long encyclical. It's very, very brief. And uh, when it came out, the, some of the first comments were, oh, the Pope is poaching. The Pope is out trying to get this little fringe group of Anglicans and bring them into Catholic Church uh, because they're dissatisfied with what's going on within the Church of England. There was a great little paragraph by Diogenes. Diogenes said the following right after this appeared. The Times of London, with its dizzyingly reckless Monty Python approach to religious stories, <laughs> headlines this article, 
Vatican moves to poach traditional Anglicans. That was the headline of the Times of London. But the poaching metaphor is an odd choice of images. When the rabbits in question have been pleading, sometimes for decades, to jump into the hunter's game bag. <laughs> After all, the decisions that changed the playing field were made by the Anglican churches, not the Pope. Then, in, with that in mind, listen to this first paragraph of the document itself. In recent times, the Holy Spirit has moved groups of Anglicans to petition repeatedly and insistently to be received into full Catholic communion individually as well as corporately. So he's responding to long-standing, continuous, and multiple requests by Anglicans as individuals and as communities to have union with the Catholic Church. The Apostolic See has responded favorably to such petitions. Indeed, the successor of Peter, mandated by the Lord Jesus to guarantee the unity of the Episcopate and to preside over and safeguard the universal communion of all the churches, footnote to Vatican Council II, Lumen Gentium, could not fail to make available the means necessary to bring this holy desire to realization. So it's not the Vatican out trying to exploit a circumstance. It's a response which the Holy Father felt he had to make to these continued heartfelt requests. So this is a little document. I'll just give you a little summary here. That was the first paragraph. The second paragraph talks about the wound of division in the Church of the West the Reformation brought about. The third paragraph talks about the church as both a spiritual reality, but one which is incarnate. He says it is the Holy Spirit, the principle of unity, which establishes the church as a communion. So it's a spiritual communion. But later he says, it's not only an invisible spiritual communion, but it's also visible. That's the third paragraph. The fourth paragraph is has to do with the role of Peter. This church, which is spiritual and incarnate concretely, is governed by the successor of Peter and by the bishops in communion with him. So those are the first four paragraphs. They're very brief. And now comes the provision that he makes. He says, in the light of these ecclesiological principles, and there were 11 footnotes in these first four paragraphs, and nine of them were from Lumen Gentium, which is the Vatican Council II document on the church. So you see, once again, the Pope is referring to Vatican II as normative in the organic growth of the church and as a rule for his own decisions. In light of these ecclesiastical principles, the Apostolic Constitution provides the general normative structure, here's what it's going to do now, for regulating the institution and life of personal ordinariates, personal ordinariates, for those Anglican faithful who desire to come into the full communion of the Catholic Church in a corporate manner. 
This constitution is completed by complementary norms issued by the Apostolic See. So there's two documents here. One is the Apostolic Constitution and one is the complementary norms. I got both of them here and I'll give you a little summary of them with, with some quotes. Here are some of the key you know, concepts now, key elements of this document. In paragraph one, he says, the personal ordinariates are going to be within the confines of the territorial boundaries of a particular conference of bishops. So there will be, or may be, if there are petitions are get made and responded to, within our bishops' conference, the USCCB, the United States of America, there will be personal ordinariates, kind of like the military ordinariate. You know, the military ordinariate is not territorial. It has to do with all men and women in the armed forces of the United States. They are in a particular diocese-like entity, which we call an ordinariate. Within the territory of a particular conference of bishops, one or more ordinariates may be erected. So there may be more than one here in the United States. By the way, this is for the whole world, but I'm going to speak to you about its relevance and application for our own country, the United States. Paragraph three, it is juridically comparable to a diocese. So this is going to be like a diocese, all right? Who will compose the diocese? Who's going to be members of this ordinariate like a diocese? One, those originally belonging to the Anglican Communion, and now in full communion with the Catholic Church. So if you've been an Anglican and you've become Catholic, you can be part of this ordinariate. Or those who receive the sacraments of initiation, baptism, especially within the jurisdiction of the ordinariate. So that's, that's who's going to be in it. What are they going to do for Mass? This is under paragraph 5, number 3. Without excluding liturgical celebrations according to the Roman rite, that is the Mass that we experience ourselves, liturgical celebrations may be uh, celebrated according to the liturgical books proper to the Anglican tradition, which have been approved by the Holy See. So their present liturgical books, which are a result of uh, you know, what happened after the Reformation in England, 1534, but reviewed by and corrected by uh, and approved by the Holy See. Now, the Pope will appoint the ordinary, okay, the one who is in charge of the ordinariate. What will be his power, his potestas? It's a canonical term. The power is ordinary, that is connected by the law itself to the office entrusted to him by the Holy See, by the Roman Pontiff. So this isn't just an indult. This is not something temporary. This is not something which is a privilege. This is the ordinary power which comes through the appointment by the Holy See. It is vicarious. It is exercised in the name of Roman Pontiff, and it is personal. It's exercised over all who belong to the ordinariate, so it's not territorial. So that's what he's doing. Personal ordinariates with ordinaries appointed by him. Now, this is, an, this is an interesting, very important sentence I'm going to read now. This power is to be exercised jointly with that of the local diocesan bishop in those cases provided for in the complementary norm. So the question is always going to be, well, wait a minute, we're going to have 
two dioceses in the same territory. We're going to have a bishop or an archbishop in charge of the territorial diocese, Washington, D.C., you know, Seattle, Los Angeles, whatever it might be. And there's going to be other ordinaries with the same Episcopal powers, so to speak, that are inside. Well, how do they work together? The power they both have exercised jointly, but not in everything, only in those things provided for by the company. So we have to wait and see what's that going to be. Because you can see right now, there's a formula for tremendous confusion here. If we're going to have two bishops you know, on the same territory trying to jointly exercise their power. What kind of clergy are they going to have? Because in the Anglican Church, clergy can be married. The ordinary of the Anglican, I mean, personal ordinariate, in full observance of the discipline of the celibate clergy in the Latin Church, as a rule, pro regula, will admit only celibate men to the order of presbytery or priesthood. There is a provision for the admission of married men to the order of presbytery in a case-by-case -case basis. There's a few other points here which are not of, talks about seminary programs and, and, and religious orders. They call them institutes of consecrated life and societies of apostolic life. You know, it can be brought back into the church. And then there's a governing council in each ordinariate, which, which kind of corresponds to both the uh, presbyteral council in Catholic dioceses and the College of Consultors. There's a finance council, it's very, very practical here, finance council, and a pastoral council. So that's, those are the main elements of the Constitution itself. Now let's take a quick look at the uh, complementary norms, which are issued around the same time. <clears throat> <clears throat> One of the things is that the ordinary of the Anglican, or not Anglican, let's call it the personal ordinariate, follows the directors of the National Episcopal Conference insofar as it is consistent with these norms. So he's part of the conference. He's to remain, retain close ties of communion with the bishop of the diocese, but that's left rather vague. Remember I mentioned in the, in the document itself there's a sharing of power. There's a mutual uh, sharing of the power over the persons that are in the territorial area that includes both the diocese and the ordinariate. <clears throat> the ordinary may be, here's an interesting thing, the ordinary may be a bishop or a presbyter, priest, appointed by the Roman pontiff. So you can actually have the ordinary being not a bishop, but a priest. <clears throat> About the faithful, who can be part of this? Those baptized previously as Catholics outside the ordinariate are not ordinarily eligible for membership unless they are members of a family belonging to the ordinariate. So uh, you'll see in a moment when I give you some of the advantages of this ordinariate that would be desired. Some perhaps you say, I want, to, I want to join. Well, ordinarily, you can't be part of it unless you were already an Anglican before you started, or a member of a family who was already Anglican. Now comes one of the two cases 
where the power is jointly shared. Lay faithful and members of the Institutes of Consecrated Life and Societies of Apostolic Life, when they collaborate in pastoral or charitable activities, whether docent or parochial, are subject to the docent bishop or to the pastor of the place, in which case the power of the docent bishop or pastor is exercised jointly with that of the ordinary and the pastor of the ordinary. So basically, if we got people working together in a parish or in a diocese that they're jointly subject. But that's only when they're doing common activities, common charitable activities, like running a hospital or something like that. Here's an interesting point. It's Article 6, Paragraph 2. Those who have been previously ordained in the Catholic Church, that is, priests who were originally Catholic priests, and have subsequently become Anglicans, may not exercise sacred ministry in the ordinaria. So this is to prevent... Catholic priest like Father Pekorsky <laughs> becoming an Anglican and then asking if he could come back if he could find someone to marry him to be a married priest in the ordinaria, you see. So that's excluded. Eat your heart out. Okay. Here's the, here's the second case where there's supposed to be joint authority. Where and when it is deemed suitable, clergy incarnated in a diocese or in an institute of consecrated life or society of apostolic life, with the written consent of their respective diocesan bishop or their superior, can collaborate in the pastoral care of the ordinary. So again, if you know Father Pekorsky wants to say some masses or hear confessions or run the snowplow at the at the ordinary parish. You know, as long as the bishop approves, you know, he can do that. There's kind of joint, joint power exercise there. Uh, finally, the, the final point I think I'm going to mention from this, these, these norms is that a married former Anglican bishop is eligible to be appointed ordinary. In such cases, he is to be ordained a priest in the Catholic Church. So even a married Anglican bishop could become a priest. Okay, so that's basically, you know, in summary, what the document says, personal ordinariates with the conditions that I've expressed in, in quoting these things. Now let's take a quick look. I got some time left, I think. Got some wine left. Uh, the consequences. The first kind of sociological consequences, even within the Anglican communion, which is large, we're not talking about a great horde of people. There's probably 400,000 in the world that are, have been asked to enter into communion with the church or are part of these communities which want to become united to the church. So it's 400,000 more or less lay people and about 1,000 priests, and about 300 parishes. This is worldwide. Of course, a lot of parts of the world, there aren't too many of these people or these priests. So it's, it's, it's England, the United States, Australia, Canada, some parts of Europe, uh, South Africa, perhaps. I'm not sure how many are down there. But so from the point of view of the Catholic Church, we're not talking about a great you know, mass 
uh, ingressus, uh, you know, coming into the church because there's a billion plus Catholics in the world and there are tens of thousands of priests. So this is not going to make a big dent sociologically. There's an important doctrinal consequence, perspective, reflection, and I really recommend to you this article by Mary Eberstadt, uh, and I'm going to give you some quotes from this because the motivation for this article was precisely this apostolic constitution. And I'm going to make just a selective quotes and comment on it, okay? She says, it is the latest example and most dramatic example of how orthodoxy rather than dissent seems once again to have taken the driver's seat of Christianity. This is called, by the way, Christianity light. Uh, what we are witnessing is not only the beginning of the end of the Anglican Communion, she'll describe that later, but indeed the end of something even larger, the phenomenon of Christianity light, L-I-T-E, itself. By this I mean the multifaceted institutional experiment, beginning but not ending with the Anglican Communion, of attempting to preserve Christianity while simultaneously jettisoning certain of its traditional teaching, specifically those regarding sexual morality. So she sees a pattern here. It means that the most unwanted an unfashionable traditional teaching of Christianity, its sexual moral code, demands of the modern mind a new and respectful look. As a strategic matter, it also means that the current battle within the Catholic Church between traditionalists and dissenters must go to the traditional, traditionalists, lest the dissenters of cafeteria Catholics, lest the dissenters or Cafeteria Catholics take the same path that the Church of Christian, Christianity Light have followed down, down, down. And now she's going to give a, a brief historical analysis of what happened. It was the Anglicans who first started picking apart the tapestry of Christian sexual morality. Hundreds of years ago, long before the sexual revolution, and over one particular thread, Divorce. So she's going to trace how divorce was treated within the Anglican Communion. She mentions that no bishop, archbishop, or incumbent of high Anglican office in the first half of the 17th century supported the legalization of divorce. So the Anglican Church also held that divorce was not permitted. In the United States, sometime later than that, Anglican churches soon were relaxing the strictest restrictions, making divorce more or less easy to come by, depending on where one lives. So here's the trajectory for divorce. Then came another turn of the theological wheel. As of the General Synod in 2002, divorced Anglicans could now remarry in the church. So this was a a trajectory that went from the 17th, 18th century to the present in which divorce first was prohibited and then it was permitted and then it became more common. 
she concludes this part. Thus does the Anglican attempt to lighten up the Christian moral code over the specific issue of divorce exhibit a clear pattern that appears over and over in the history of the experiment of Christianity light. And here's the pattern. First, limited exceptions are made to a rule. Next, those exceptions are no longer limited and become the unremarkable norm. Finally, that new norm is now itself sanctified as theologically acceptable. So that, that's the path that takes place. There's other examples. That was divorce. She cites contraception and homosexuality. A question barely at the boundary of general consciousness 30 years ago has assumed central importance to the present life and future of the Episcopal Church. Why this remarkable transformation? In part, because the reformers at Lambeth, this is 1930 in Lambeth Council in England, when the Church of England permitted with, as an exception, to be used rarely, a contraception. In part because the reformers at Lambeth and elsewhere did not foresee something else that in retrospect appears obvious. The chain of logic leading from the occasional acceptance of contraception to the open celebration of homosexuality would prove surprisingly sound. I'm going to expand on this, but I've only got five minutes left, but I'm going to take ten. Uh, <laughs> Roger Runcie, former Archbishop of Canterbury, he says, he cites the Lambeth Conference in 1930, and he says that once the church signaled that sexual activity was for human delight and a blessing even if it was divorced from the idea of procreation, this is the Anglican, uh, former Archbishop Canterbury speaking here, once you've said that sexual activity is pleasing to God in itself, then what about people who are engaged in same-sex expression and are incapable of heterosexual expression? Once you separate sexual enjoyment from procreation, well, how can you prevent someone from having it? And here comes the current Archbishop of Canterbury, Rowan Williams, who said this, in a church which accepts the legitimacy of contraception, the absolute condemnation of same-sex relations of intimacy must rely either on an abstract fundamentalist deployment of a number of very ambiguous texts, so exegesis, which simply says the prohibition against homosexuality in the Bible is ambiguous, or on a problematic and non-scriptural theory about natural complementarity applied narrowly and crudely to physical differences without regard to psychological structures. This is Gnosticism, that we can have different psychologies, men and women, that are divorced from the fact that they've got different bodies. But here's Rowan Williams saying that. But He's right in this. Once you divorce procreation from union in the sexual act, then there's no justification for prohibit, prohibiting sexual pleasure. Rewriting the rules about sex does not, historically speaking, end with sex. Now, so she's given the example of, of divorce, contraception, homosexuality, and what the path is it's followed, but she says, it doesn't end with the sexual moral issues. She gives three examples. Bishop James Pike, 
who became basically insane, uh, Joseph Fletcher, an ordained Episcopal priest who wrote Situational Ethics, Bishop John Shelley Spong, uh, who basically denied the resurrection, denied the virgin birth. These examples, she says, are among many that could be cited to illustrate an important point. Even in the hands of its ablest defenders, Christianity light, the attempt of making Christianity easier by relaxing the sexual mores, has proven time and again to be incapable of limiting itself to the rules about sex alone. What accounts, she asks, for this epical, perhaps even counterintuitive outcome, one that surely would have shocked the original architects of this grand religious experiment, most of whom longed only for a Christianity with a happier human face? Let's try and reach out. Let's try and be merciful and compassionate. Three answers. One answer appears obvious enough. If enough people over enough time turn their backs on the injunction to be fruitful and multiply, eventually their churches will cease being fruitful and multiplying. You know? <laughs> You're not going to have babies. You're not going to have a congregation. Secondly, people who cannot be expected to obey in difficult matters cannot be expected to obey in easier ones either. It's another principle. And finally, she says, the hidden power of the Christian moral code. The more decadent the age, the more does the forceful insistence that there is a right and wrong about matters of sex exert a gravitational pull all its own. So I, I made a very brief and, and kind of uh, discontinuous summary there of, of what she said, but I think she has she's seen into the internal logic of what is happening uh, in the Anglican Church and other churches and which the Catholic Church has been vilified for resisting that once you relax the sexual moral code, especially in the area of contraception, that you end up with losing other dogmatic elements as well and losing your congregation and losing the unity of the faith. And so this, this is, over time, you know, led to the disintegration of the Anglican communion and led to this desire of those who tr try to follow scriptural traditional norms to unite themselves to the only church that's preserved them as an institution. Okay, so that's the second point, the doctrinal significance, I would say, of this. I'll do very briefly talk about liturgical significance. Uh, just as the Holy Father, in his motu proprio, Samorum Pontificum, wanted to have the extraordinary form be a sign of and a standard of continuity and of traditional reverence, uh, the liturgies of those Anglicans especially who have belonged to those groups, the, one of them is TAC, the Traditional Anglican Communion, uh, have preserved a very beautiful, a very noble, reverential and formal liturgy with music and everything else. And so I think the existence of more of those communities among our dioceses is going to be a, a model and an encouragement and a motivation for Roman Catholics in the diocese to have masses which express more fully that kind of reverence. Here's a very common, you know, concrete example. You may know that the Holy Father, and I think it was the summer of 19, 2009 uh, at Brescia, said that from now on, 
those who receive communion at papal masses from him must receive kneeling and on the tongue because he believes it expresses greater reverence. When I was visiting England on a pilgrimage with Joseph Pierce over a period of two years, I mean two summers, we would say mass at different churches where we were. And it was interesting, uh, in all the Catholic churches we went to, where I celebrated mass, the altar rails were gone. In all the Anglican churches, the altar rails were there. And people kneeled for communion to receive what was not the body of Christ. <laughs> in the Catholic churches, they stood to receive what was the body of Christ. So this will be, I think, uh, a positive, have a positive effect over time on the religion of the Catholic Church. And one, uh, one final thing on this, uh, since the 1980s, there has been what's called the uh, Anglican Use Permission, where parishes of Anglicans who wanted to become Catholics were permitted to do so, but under very careful, stringent, limited circumstances, and the diocesan bishop had to approve. There's one or two of them in Texas. One I know best is in San Antonio, Our Lady of Atonement, beautiful church there, Father Phillips. And they have the, the Mass according to the Book of Common Prayer in English, but they also have the Mass, the Novus Order in Latin. And they have a beautiful choir, an altar rail, Gregorian chant, kneeling for communion. It's extraordinary. Well, where in the United States, what diocese has the most groups of Anglicans that want to come into the Catholic Church? It's Los Angeles. <laughs> why have there not been, why have there not been any Anglican used churches in Los Angeles? Because the ordinary of the archdiocese will not permit it, would not permit it up until this time. We're now going to have, I'm sure, a number of parishes in California, including Los Angeles, that will be part of the personal ordinariate. And so, hey, there's a free market in the liturgy, too. You know? <laughs> and uh, pastors who deviate too much from the norm or have masses which are really irreverent are going to lose their best parishioners to the parish down the block, which belongs to the personal ordinary. So let me conclude with the conclusion of Mary Eberstadt, who says it better than I could. The one thing we can spy as of this moment is noteworthy enough. The beginning of the end, not only of Anglicanism, as the world has known it in the past century, but also of the other churches that similarly joined their fates to that of Christianity light, that is making things easier to try and attract more people. It is hard to overstate how momentous their unraveling is, or how bracing a slap in the modern face. After all, if there is a single point to which modern enlightened people have been agreeing for a long time now, it is that the antiquated sexual notions of the Catholic Church are an anachronism that had, got, that had to go for the sake of a kinder, gentler Christianity. It would be more than passing strange if at the end of the day that very anachronism were to turn out to be something that could not be sacrificed after all not without having everything else fall down anyway.
Then again, it wouldn't be the first time in Christian history that a piece rejected by the builders turned out to be the cornerstone. Thank you.